The following contains strong language, violence, and nudity. It is intended only for mature audiences. Discretion advised. Go on. I'm listening. I just wanted to find those code numbers. I'm not interested in code numbers, Terry. We lost a rather large number of weapons from that ordinance annex a week ago. I don't want to have to explain this screw-up to the president. It may have been an inside job, sir. What are you talking about? Well, sir, I've been running some cataloging reports on my own. And I caught some code discrepancies in our weapon storage files. Go on. I did some checking. And crazy as it sounds, it looks like someone might be diverting weapons shipments to other delivery sites, then changing the info in the computer. You have any proof of this? It's all here in my report. Who else have you talked to about this? No one, sir. I wanted to come straight to you. Excellent. I'm glad you did. As of right now, Terry, your job is to track down every instance of these discrepancies in the weapons shipment files. I'll need verification and documented evidence if I'm going to get into this with a full-scale investigation. Yes, sir. Keep me informed. I just want to go on record and say, I hope I'm wrong. I hope this is just some horrible mix-up. I'll second that. Thank you, Terry. Goddamn boy, Scout. Last thing I need is him turning a few heads by talking to someone. Fortunately, Terry's a loyal puppet. Always works in the best interests of his employer. Let him find all the loose ends. We'll tie them up later. Welcome to Spawnometer. I'm your host, Mr. Fixit. With me today is... Diablo Frank. So, Frank, what are we going to play with here today? Well, I'll start off with the extended intro to Spawn number 12, Flashback Part 1, uh, this time solely by Todd McFarlane, aside from the editor and letterer Tom Orzachowski, and colors by Steve Olaf and Ruben Rude of Oleoptics. This one is dedicated to Shell Dorf, who was the founder of the San Diego Comic-Con. He died a few years after this dedication. R.I.P. Spawn. More appropriately, Hell Spawn. The officers in training of the Malbolgia, sent to the living world to hone their potent, yet limited supply of power. They must first prove worthy of their rare selection as a warrior from the realms beyond. The latest recruit, and the first this century, is Lieutenant Colonel Al Simmons. Millions of souls, both good and evil, were bypassed before Simmons was appointed. He had the gift, the right wiring, the well-tooled machinery. During his first existence on Earth, he had shown a willingness to follow orders to kill, to murder, to slaughter, all in the name of duty. He didn't believe in the great beyond, but his atheistic leanings only made Hell's selection of him even more satisfying. Yet the unbeliever cannot be chosen against his will. He or she must open the door to evil willingly and without hesitation. The surreal trauma of death experienced by each soul leaves many open to exploitation. The evil one quickly found the chink in Simmons' emotional armor. Love. Not for duty or country, but for someone. This weakness has been the greatest of all aids to enlistment for Malbolge's army. Easily manipulated newly arrived souls will barter nearly anything for love. They will promise and evil will accept. Thus, their fate is sealed. The pact will be in effect for eternity. This irony, love is evil's trump card, is not hidden from God. Someday, these two powers will clash over this cosmic holy grail. Armageddon will be fought for the reasons humans exist in the first place. Love. Al Simmons traded his soul for it. Eventually, the new spawn will have all his answers. Until that day, he can only continue to struggle for some sense of order and meaning to his existence. His memory has already 
access some vital clues, but others are buried deep in his subconscious and emerge only sporadically. Of these brief visions, how many are to be believed? How many have been changed? At least he accepts the notion that his life is completely out of control. The fight with Angela, the angel warrior, sent him to purgatory, temporarily disconnecting his powers. When all seemed lost, he blinked, only to find himself back on Earth again, among his newfound friends, New York's homeless. His powers obviously include transmutation and reality adjusting. Unfortunately, neither is at his discretion, nor is the lure of this church. Now, for the third time, he has heeded its call, not knowing whether some divine spirit is trying to help or haunt him. His still-human thought process allows him to make only the obvious personal connection, his wedding. Cyan, child, stay out of those chocolates and get an apple like Granny told you to. All right, Granny. <laughs> then we get a flashback to him getting married. We see him hanging out with Grandmother Blake, who is much leaner. She really swole up in those five years. shaming Grandma Blake? The diabetes must have really got into her in that five-year time span. Oh she must have God. taken the death of Al Simmons really hard. She's talking about how she was trying to talk Wanda into taking her husband's name, yes. but he, she refused. The same thing she did with Terry Fitzgerald. More power to she's her. She's really strong. I'm sure you're. she's on your soapbox. What else happens here? You should be taking over from here. It's just kind of a recap of what was going on with the story in terms of how Al is still trying to reconnect with his old life. He's apprehensive to see that if they still miss him or not. He's not sure. That's all right, child. I'll get it. Who could that be? Yes? Can I help you? I'm, I'm looking for Wanda Blake. And who is this that's asking? Just an old friend of hers. Back in town. Well, now, I know most of Wanda's friends. Hi, it's me, Cyan. I'm sorry to have bothered you. <laughs> Would you like to come in and wait for her? No. I've made a mistake. He confronts Grandma Blake to see if, you know, Wanda still thinks about him. And she talks about how she visits every Wednesday and talks her, her about Her love's him just as strong as ever. And, and, and she rec does she recognize him as Elle? Uh, as soon as he starts talking, I think so. Please, don't go. At least not yet, Al. Granny. What? You think I still wouldn't know you? I visit your grave every Sunday to talk to you and pray for you. I prayed that you'd answer me in some way. I could use a few prayers. So she thinks it's like his spirit or something yeah, talking well, to her, Yeah, because right? he's like, you know, oh, the, I'm from the great beyond. Is he in his white I'm boy mode? I'm you into the heavens. And she's like, oh, I can't wait to hang out with you there. And he's like, well, I ain't there, sweetheart. Like, right. Is he in his white boy mode? No, he's in his deformed pizza mode. Okay. is he? Yeah. So he's just full on spawn. Yeah, out he's spawned out, except he's wearing a members-only coat with a baseball cap. So, And that was a sequence that they largely adapted for the cartoon in the later and seasons. The movie, don't, no, no, they never used that in the movie. I don't think Grandma was in the movie. Granny, yeah. Yeah, I can't. I can't remember the movie. It's been a and we've seen Grandma Blake before, right? This isn't her introduction, is it? No, I can tell you that this whole issue to me was a recap of. But no, I'm asking you that was Grandma Blake in any of the early issues, or did we just now introduce her? Yeah, the first one. She was in the first issue. I want to say she was. Granny Blake was in the first issue, really? Not the first issue, but like in the first run of Spawn. Because I want to say whenever he sees her, we'll have she, to go look. This might be her she first wasn't appearance. Prominent, but she did pop up. I, I'm, I'm, she's going to be in a lot of these well, Spawn yeah, comics. She seems to be. She's going to almost become the in between between Al and Wanda's new 
new life because she he starts asking, "Does Wanda miss me? Wanda's new kid. Wanda's new husband." Basically, she's the gossip in the neighborhood. She's telling him all the stuff that he wasn't able to learn. She's filling in all the gaps in his mind mm-hmm. of what's going on. Well, and in some degree, she was like the Cogliostro of the comics. She didn't have the supernatural connections that he had, but she was sort of like Spawn's guide and sort of his his sounding board and the the person he would go to to talk things out with and have advice from and stuff. I guess she was like one of the only people who knew who he was and could, he could actually relate to. We'll have to read a little bit more to see if she fulfills your role. So at this point, CNN E is used. Yeah, they, the entertainment channel, yeah. and they have a guy from uh, the Rush Limbaugh six. No, he's supposed to. I'm, I'm assuming supposed to be like I guess a local because you have CNN E and then Viacom. Well, see what it is. You've got Connie Chung on the network. You've got a stereotypical gay reporter for E, and then you've got the bloated conservative who's a Morton Downey Jr. or Rush Limbaugh, yeah. and he moves from channel to channel because he keeps getting fired for his far right rhetoric true could be but they all kind of start- and well you remember too rush when he had a tv show he was on syndication he was never on a network we'll get you off your soapbox it's, okay it's just a comic i'm just saying so al is very curious about what's going on with wanda and if he still feels like he's trying to see he's feeling out if, he's, if he still has a shot <laughs> yeah he's filling it out and then of course we see sam and twitch and they're i believe still under vest- investigation because they found billy's body in their office right there's still some questions well whether or not they did some jammed in all kinds of orifices right whether they did some little vigilante action yeah, i believe they're stuck at desk duty for the time being and then we see wanda walking with her daughter saying you can definitely you they're definitely touching base with all the characters that have been established on the series to get people back into the regular flow of the comic after yeah. this extended break with all the, well, writer the writers series. yeah well that's what i'm saying when i was reading this it felt like oh he's just trying to remind me of everything i just fucking read a few weeks ago okay yeah. although um, i appreciate that one of the things that's nice about spawn is it, it grounds you you know what the fuck's going on one problem that image has is sometimes they throw so much stuff at you that you're kind of like wait what was well, who's this person and why was this happening and stuff and spawn somebody to its detriment always reminds you okay this is where we're at this is what we've been doing and, and we can go from here now well we're introduced to the child wanda and her daddy which is terry and i guess at this time spawn realizes right that terry his best friend is married to wanda he now realizes that wanda didn't even take his last name that she's keeping i guess her last name which i believe even uh, grandma blake brought up as won't that be a problem for the child because how many names will the child have and so Terry, at this point... I believe it's Jason Wynn is concerned about a spy within his organization. It's kind of hinted that Terry has a lot of... uh access to areas that would he performs a lot of audits yeah. and stuff so he has access to some sense of information yeah, that would make that would would, would uh, shine a light on uh, Jason Wynn's uh, illegal activity well he finds some irregularities that he brings to Wynn's attention so, right yeah they send some uh, tough guys to go talk to Terry first thing they say is it'd be a damn shame if something happened to your family so you kind of know where they're going with this were they hired by Michael Cohen <laughs> dude you and your damn the suits go back to Jason they tell him hey we delivered the threat I think he got the message he's laughing about it we're reintroduced to Spawn hanging out in. Uh, did they ever give a name to the alley that he hangs I, out? I just call it Spawn Alley because that's what they called it. In well, the, they, one, didn't they actually in do the a cartoon, toy they call set? It Rat Rat Alley. Yeah, Rat Rat City. I Rat think City, in the cartoon. There you go. Yeah, he's down there. He's drinking out with the homies. They're singing the Flintstones. And 
And so they're all having drinks. They're all having a good time. Oh, yeah, this is yeah, it's a big deal because they were singing the Flintstones theme. They're really, Todd seems like he's really rubbing it in Hanna-Barbera's faces without appreciating how badly that was going to end up turning out. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I, we'll bring that up in just a moment. And so they're all having a drink and they're talking about Jurassic farts and all kinds of just <laughs> yeah, a lot of locker talk. <sighs> one of the guys that hangs out with him, one of the homeless guys, picks up Spawn's mask and puts it on, pretending to be Spawn, and the mask automatically attacks him, goes into attack mode. Tries to suffocate him, right? Basically, yeah. They're able to get the mask off. Spawn apologizes. And everyone's cool, but he's trying to warn everybody, like, I don't have full control of this costume. If it, if it senses the threat, it's going to attack, and I don't have 100% control over it. That's a weird area to put him where he has this very powerful weapon on him at all times that's part of him, but yet he doesn't have full control of this weapon. Well, I mean, the symbiote is held spawned. It's a distinct entity from Spawn himself. Now, I believe that they've already said in the comics, I think Cogliostro told Spawn that the suit loved him. Yeah. But it's still an infernal device. I can see where that might be a problem. He's but once again, it, but you've talked a lot of shit about how Spawn is basically a ripoff of Venom. Spider-Man Venom. and Doctor Strange. But yeah, the fact that there's a symbiote, it's very Venom-y. Yeah. That's maybe like Todd McFarlane taking it back. He was the co-creator of Venom, but he doesn't get any money off that or any credit off of it. Or he gets some credit, but no money. So maybe he was sort of like, well, I'm going to take the symbiote, even though he obviously didn't invent the symbiote aspect. So yeah, I guess Mike Zach's creation. The costume was based on an idea by a fan. Mike Zach was the per- first person to realize it as a drawing, but the actual concept probably came out of the Spider-Man editorial office or from Jim Shooter. Point being is, I don't think that Todd McFarlane had ever heard the word symbiote before somebody wrote into a script for a Spider-Man yeah. that he was drawing. And let's be honest, Venom really didn't become Venom until later on, I think. I think that he you was- had a decent version of Venom in the McFarlane. I'm going to eat your brains. Yeah, no. yeah I, I personally, I liked, no I, I liked Eric Larson's version of Venom better. I think it had more character with the fang. He, yeah. had, he had the full fangs and he had the tongue. The and dropped jaw too, didn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is funny too because then McFarlane would do Violator with the slack jaw. Al has a moment of clarity where he starts having flashbacks of his past life and he sees a skull. Initially, he's thinking it's just about the skull relating to his death. Just like the American flag relates to his casket. The cross was just the place where he got married, the church where he got married, his lack of faith perhaps damning him. He's been misinterpreting these images that he's been seeing the whole time. But he finally puts it together arbitrarily. And it's Chapa! Which, at this point, I don't think we really knew who he was, did we? Within the Spawn comics, he had not appeared, no. He was already in Youngblood, but if you were only reading Spawn comics... You didn't know who he was. Who the fuck is Chapel? Yeah, so it was kind of like, okay. It's like, what a ripoff, you know? You, You did not set this up at all. They've made allusions to the Youngblood program, but no connections directly to any members of the team within the Spawn comics. So if this were a murder mystery, Todd McFarlane completely cheated by not giving you any clues that would yeah. allow you to form it based solely on Spawn. Well, it had no emotional impact. It would have been different. I like, think, oh I my think God, it's-, it's Chapel, my favorite character at the beginning who saved Wanda's life and saved that box of kittens. Right. No, it was his like best Chapel. friend. Yeah, it's yeah. just Chapel. Yeah, it's like, like, okay. oh, that's the guy from Youngblood. It definitely sells the Image Comics universe. Yeah. But if you're just reading Spawn. If you're like, I'm a lo- I love Todd McFarlane, I love Spawn, this is the only book I'm going to read completely out of nowhere. Okay, so what did you think of this issue? It was a f- waste. It was just basically a, hey guys, you remember this from the first book you read before like I had a bunch of writers come in and flush out my universe? Remember this is the story I wanted to tell y'all? Here it is again. Although I will say, especially when you see that little part that I was quoting at the beginning, you can see where he's embedded that material into his own lore. Yeah. The actual events of the writer series doesn't get in much, to much of a degree touched on in this issue, but you can see where he really is explaining, I'm in Hell's Army, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, and you can see particularly where the Neil Gaiman influence comes in. But again, it was just a rehashing of basically everything we've read up to that point. Yeah. Minus the, the writer's 
Blah. Well, I think that he was thinking that he picked up some readers from the Rider series, which is a, a reasonable, like, very possible. Because I mean, the first issue sold really well, and then the other, the subsequent issues were in the, like the half million range. So this is just a, and then this, the Rider series jumping on point. Yeah, because the my understanding is Spawn had gone from the two million high of the first issue down to somewhere in the realm of five to six hundred thousand per issue, especially number four. Number four was a hot book for a while there because it was low printed based on demand, mm-hmm. and there weren't enough copies to go around, and it actually managed to be one of like the top ten hot wizard books for a while there when the, the book jumped back up to a million copies for the alan moore issue and i think a little over a million copies or, or one of they both did i think most of the writer series did about a million copies so it's reasonable to assume that some of those people that came in for those writers stayed on yeah. so it totally okay. makes sense that he would want to make sure to get those readers up to date on what he's doing and also show that the story's advancing by revealing who spawn's killer was it's just too bad that they totally cheated on not building up to that true it should have a crossover or something to give us instead of doing a crossover after we find out who it is i guess when you put it in that light yes it was a very good jumping on point if this was your first podcast to listen with us you could be like well fuck the rest of that shit i'm i'm on board issue one here i can start here so the audio on some of those are fucked we're just gonna skip those and jump right into episode 12 they they, they were a lot more fun after uh issue uh, 12 they i I think they really got their footing they knew what they're doing (laughs) there you go after reading issue number 11 this was a huge improvement well dude a lot of fucking words todd he just (laughs) threw up language he was basically the anti-life though Liefeld did not have enough words on his pages. McFarlane was making up for it by having way too many words. Because like, uh, I, I, I mean, think he just started making up shit after a while. Well, just, toward the beginning there, it very much felt like he was looking at how many words per page Neil Gaiman was packing on and was trying to match that thing. Ah, that would pissing equal the contest. Mm. Uh, but also, he did get Tom Orzakowski too. Orzakowski was famous for doing X-Men. And another writer that's well known for overwriting was Chris Claremont. So he got the right letterer for the job, at least. Well, I mean, they definitely squeezed lettering everywhere they could. Well, I think McFarlane also realized that he could do it in a small one-page pinup and just have a whole column of words and not have to put in a lot of effort to the drawing. Clever little trick reading, get the book out on a monthly basis. And pretty much every character is reintroduced in here, with the exception of uh, Clown and Melbolgia. I just wish he had done it on issue 11, so you could have said it's number 1-1. One, one. Yeah. Having a good time, I trust. Yeah, whatever. You really should learn how to relax, Chapel. Blood helps me relax. Got any for me? A weapon shipment going to North Korea. You accompany with our compliments. And? Wait nine hours, then obliterate the shipment and give them a bloody nose. After that, I'll have something for you closer to home. When's the hop? Tomorrow morning. Usual pickup and delivery. I don't like a lot of downtime, you know that. So get a hobby. You coming with me? Initially had the idea for Image. Was it Rob? Was it Todd? Who did you first hear about it from? 
I first heard about it from Todd. But I believe it was Rob and Todd and I think Jim Valentino early on. And I know that uh, Eric Larson was part of the early conversations. And ironically, uh, I heard about it in New York because I was visiting Marvel Comics for an X-Men summit, a creative summit. And I think Rob Liefeld at the time already, you know, knew that, okay, we're going to do something. I don't know if it was called Image Comics at that time or whatever, but him and Todd had already, like, cooked this thing up, and it was going to happen. Where, you know, however many guys, there was no number at that time, however many guys were going to break away and start their own thing. Um, so Rob was actually at that same uh, meeting. Yeah, because he was part of the X meeting. family at the time. Yeah, he was part of the X family with X, uh, X-Force. So it was like this big X-Men meeting with all the uh, major players, creative and editorial. So I had this idea that I was going to pitch at the meeting. Um, and, you know, I think Bob Harris had, was kind of the guy. And he was conducting the meeting and he said, anybody have any ideas and all this stuff? And I started pitching this idea of these mutants. But here's the thing. They're cybernetically enhanced. And I want to call it Cyberforce. And Rob would tell me later that, because he was at the meeting, he's going, don't, don't say anything. Save this for Image Comics. We're going to talk to you. Save it for Image. Oh, it's a great idea. Save it for Image. Which, you know, Marvel didn't bite, so. They flat out said no. Yeah, it's like, Cyberforce wound up as my first Image book. But after that meeting, uh, ironically, you know, we were there on Marvel's dime, but Image was forming. The same, that the same New York City weekend, right? It's the same weekend, because the, that's also when uh, they approached Jim Lee. And Jim Lee was known as the Golden Boy. And Todd's thing has always been, uh, look, if we can get Jim Lee, yeah, we got him. We win. If we can get Jim Lee on board, we win. But I was also part of that formula. You know, because I was uh, on the next book, so I kind of mattered. Yeah, you know, you, you absolutely mattered because yeah. you, you had been a top X-Men artist f- for a while. Interesting, because to a lot of people, they would think that what you guys did would be a tremendous risk because it could, you, could, you guys could fall flat on your faces. Well, the, the sexy story is it was all risk, right? It's like, these guys went off, they did their own thing. It's like, the reality is, even looking back in 2020, we could have gone back. The biggest risk was embarrassment and the lack of opportunity. You know, that was really the biggest risk because the rewards were huge if it worked. If image worked, the rewards were you own your IP, you own your idea, you can do whatever you want. And this was, you gotta remember this 25 years ago. So things were just starting to look like other media exists. You know, it wasn't like it is today where it's just part of it. You know, where you, where you know that other media is looking at what you do every month. Uh, the studios and the networks have people that look at comic books every month to come with to them. It's like, oh, this one's cool. Back then, that wasn't the case, but there was rumblings that that could happen. You know, Batman had come back with Tim Burton. Uh, so it's like, oh, maybe there's something there. Maybe there's not. We don't know. You know, but point was, if it worked, which obviously it did, we were in control of our own destiny. Cyber Force number one came out on October 9th, 1992. It was the same week as Young Blood number three and the same month as the second issues of Savage Dragon, Shadowhawk, Brigade, and Wildcats, as well as Spawn number five. The overall story arc was called The Ten Men of War. The first issue was respectfully dedicated to Jack Kirby. None of the other issues featured dedications. Written and drawn by Mark and Eric Silvestri. Letters were by Mike Heisler and colors were by Joe Chiodo. And I, I would say on the production level alone, it was a good looking book. Joe Chiodo is a painter. I thought Mike Heisler was a solid level. 
letterer. Issue three had several inkers added to the mix. Dan Panosian and Trevor Scott, while issue four was inked by Scott Williams. And the book starts with Jacob Marlowe in the alley from Wildcats number one. When I first saw it, I thought it immediately of Blade Runner, the character played by Daryl Hannah. Press because she's got the pale skin, the eye makeup. Hair. Yeah, yeah. I remember- oh, did did Pr- no? Did Pris have red hair? I thought she she had blonde hair, didn't no, she? No, I thought she had red hair. I thought she had like maybe it was a strawberry thing. I don't remember right now. I just remember seeing that, and I was I remember thinking Blade Runner, and then someone had talked to me. I want to say it was maybe my uncle. He kept saying the book's going to be like Blade Runner. They're all half robots and androids. So I was thinking Blade Runner was like in my mind a really good sci-fi movie. Well, it was still a cultural touchstone. People didn't know about things like cyberpunk, like the general public didn't. So if you're trying to come across with that vibe, Blade Runner was the easiest shorthand to, to reference in you know ninety one ninety two. Because you had like a big explosion of that type of material later in the decade. Hell, Keanu Reeves' career was about doing cyberpunk stuff for most of the 90s. But when Cyberforce was coming out, it was still kind of new to general audiences, I would say. So basically, we're introduced to Cyberforce, the team. Velocity is running through the alleyways being chased by someone. Uh, shock troops, right? I believe so, yeah. They're, li- they're literally like S-H-O-C. It's an acronym for something, right? Velocity, she's running away from the shock group. The and young girl, a young girl, hair, yeah. slender, trench coat, right? Everybody has a trench coat, don't Pretty they? Pretty much, yeah. Well, I mean, she's a robot, so yeah, she's running a trench. Is she a robot? She got, well, she's uh, a cyborg, right? She's a cyborg, yeah. but she has like a lightning bolt across her eye. And, I mean, the art's great. Sylvester's always great artwork style. As she's running, we're introduced to Ripclaw, who I believe was Native American. Yes, and he's their version of a Wolverine slash Warblade slash Sabretooth slash. You get the gist. It's right. basically a Wolverine ripoff. Well, and don't forget, he's also a poet. Is he? Yes, he, he writes junior high poetry <laughs> that he wants to read to us over the course of our superhero adventure. Oh, uh, I thought Warblade. Warblade's the artist. Yeah, he was That's an right. artist. He's the artist. Ripclaw's the poet. I forgot. They're all very uh he like Robert Bearclaw? with their creativeness. Yeah. <laughs> because all they are rip roaring kind of guys. Well, we're introduced to Ripclaw. Then we're introduced to Don't forget that the chick that he's leading this shock is uh ballistic. ballistic. A blonde chick yeah. with guns and doesn't she have like a cybernetic eye and shit? I think so, yeah. We're bringing introduced to Timmy and uh his creator, what, Kevin? Some shit like that. Yeah. It's, it's a little white boy that's extra cute, and it turns out that he's a robot that was made by this other white dude who used to look like Timmy but grew up and decided to make a version of his younger self sort of kind of weird shit I don't know where the fuck Ted Space was grown man young man 20 something making a little boy robot for himself and then of course we're introduced to Stryker who will eventually be the lead which would make Stryker different from Cable because yeah. he's totally Cable he's Cable with a ponytail and an extra robotic arm yes yeah. <laughs> which I remember as a kid when reading that I was like fucking awesome dude he has three arms like that was like the lamest thing to get excited about but at that point I don't remember remember ever seeing like a cable-less character with three arms one thing i've never found exciting in any medium is extra appendages really? I, a tail can be cool i'm cool with a tail or some other additional prehensile thing but if you have a third arm or a fourth arm you're just going to kind of get in your own way i feel nah, like dude, that's truly the stranger <laughs> yeah there's that that's truly the stranger wasn't there an image character that had four arms it was a female i think in bloodstrike um, i think she's literally called forearm or something <laughs> like that yeah or foreplay you know, maybe something you know, like that i have to give it to larson he came up with a lot of bizarre fucking characters but at least his characters were cool and different like you made me read all that savage dragon stuff and i'm just like these are actually interesting villains and then we're introduced to cyberblade which is their psylocke basically i mean come on let's i mean basically well it's weird let's be to- honest cyberforce is the x-men but cyber it's the x-men slash marauders mixed well we're still trying to get through the actual plot of the book but oh there's, there's a- no plot here there's, there's, no there, there's a degree of plot but but the thing is you know no. where 
Cyber Force game, Frank? Well, hold on. And the last character we're introduced to is Impact, who's basically a Hulk made out of metal. Go ahead, Frank. No, he's Colossus. He's Colossus with a jerry uh, curl. He's bulkier, but it's still it's still it's, a, it's a, Col- he, if you were to mix Colossus Hulk in the Rhino, big silver guy with segmented metal armor. He's invulnerable and superhumanly strong. And just just a side. The note. only thing that does, that makes him mean that he's not Colossus is he's got a much worse costume and he's got that fucking jerry curl. I mean, you watch the same documentary I watched. You don't remember that? Yet? No, I don't remember that part. Sylvester pitches his own X-Men book, Mutants, but they also have cybernetic enhancements. And Bob Harris was like, nah. And literally like a day or so later, they caught him in a hotel bar. It was like, Oh, that's right. They were both going to the same hotel. Yeah. I remember that and, one. And so it's like, okay, well, I'm just going to take my pitch and make it an image book instead. I wouldn't be at all surprised if Cyblade was originally going to be Psylocke and they were just going to borrow it from the other books. But it, it's funny to me because, okay, obviously Psylocke was co-created by Alan Davis. And Alan Davis was the one who drew the issues that brought Psylocke into the X-Men. But then later on, Sylvester was detailing the character and they decided since she wasn't going to be a big fighter they were going to give her armors to protect her since all of her powers were based in, yeah, in she had the little powers. butterfly thing yeah, right. yeah and she had the purple and pink armor yeah. uh, and that was uh, I believe a, a Sylvester design right and so. then after the whole thing with the Siege Perilous Jim Lee came in and did his three issue arc where they reintroduced Psylocke as an Asian woman basically turned her ninja. into Electra, right yeah, ninja, ninja worked yeah. with the hand and everything else so even though Sylvester was the one who worked for that other Psylocke and so if he were to like take back his design like steal it back from Marvel they'd be like okay well yeah that's what you're doing but he takes Jim Lee's redesign of Psylocke and moves it into his book instead which I thought was lame you know but she is clearly Psylocke and then you look at some of the other members it's literally like the most generic RPG powers you got the fast one you got the one with the heat projection the strong and vulnerable one yeah the Wolverine knockoff the main difference being though that it's drawn by Mark Silvestri Silvestri I think think we can all agree I I think all the image artists looked up to Silvestri because I think on a technical level he's the best of the artists like I think he's probably one of the better storytellers, but definitely in terms of perspective, in terms of proportions, anatomy, that kind of thing, he's definitely one of, if not the best of the lot of them. So real quick side note, when we were talking about Psylocke, I do remember the issue where Colossus is slammed into her and they mentioned the only thing that saved her was the armor on her body mm-hmm. because she would have been killed because she had a giant metal man slammed against her. Right. And so when you brought that, I was like, I remember that issue. They made sure to point that out. This armor has a purpose because I mean, I remember thinking, why would a psychic need armor? Like that makes no sense to me except to protect them from long range weapons. But anyway. Well, and also, clearly, Cyberforce is all of Sylvester's predilections in one book because, let's face it, when he took over X-Men, what did he do? He made them all look like they were in a hair metal band. You know, they all had giant hair and armor and shit, and they all fought characters from Road Warrior. It was always about the Reavers or the Marauders. Yeah. Okay, wait, wait, what was uh, the difference between the Reavers and the Marauders? The Marauders was the group of mutants that were put together by Mr. Sinister to kill the Morlocks, but a bunch of them had metal armor. Is that the guy and... with the, t- the tire tread? Tank tread? No, no, no. no. See, He's Marauders Reaver, right? was Scalp Hunter who was basically a long-haired dude with like a oh, metal yeah, mustache and then the yeah harpoon was basically in all black uh, with some metal highlights arc light was basically guy, in, in silver armor there's some guy that spun that would right. like stuff mm-hmm. okay, yeah, you're yeah right. sure That's you had the big bruiser guy i think blockbuster or something yeah. was his name uh, and then with the reavers they were not mutants they were cyborgs then they spin off from the group of guys that were in the hellfire club i believe so. well, the, yeah the hellfire club i believe used them almost like pawns like yeah. use them to well, take well, care of what it was is that you, the members of the hellfire club that went up against wolverine in the dark phoenix saga mm-hmm. at some point jim shooter decided that if wolverine had actually killed all those guys that he was a mass murderer and he'd be put on trial so the only way that chris claremont could dissuade jim shooter from forcing him down into that story arc was to say no none of them died he didn't kill anybody he just mauled robots. them right so basically what they just did is said okay well what we're going to do is all those guys are now cyborgs
cyborgs and they're coming after Wolverine for revenge for chopping off parts of them. And so if I remember correctly, the first cyborgs that showed up in that Barry Windsor Smith issue mm. from like 206 of Uncanny X-Men, then they like hooked up with those Australian dudes and they formed like a full-on team of nothing but cyborgs yeah. who fought the X-Men in their Australian outback days when they were pretending to cool. be dead. Which were cool. I thought that the Reavers were cool. I thought the Marauders were cool. I just... Tell you, man, if they showed up in Logan, dude, if, if that guy had showed up with tank treads in Logan, I would have nutted in the theater, dude. I would have just like, ugh! I mean, just skit, skit, skit all over the place. Yeah. That's, they were the Reavers and they just needed that one fucking dude with the tank tread. Yeah. It was, it was the thing with Sylvester. He, all, he always had these villains who had big guns and were cyborgs because when he took over Wolverine, it became full of that same kind of thing. Well, wasn't like, the, he had well, LCD like and Wolverine, the robot right? Wolverine. Yeah, Wolverine like with shit, the little yeah. girl. Yeah, yeah. right. That's right. That's right. But he does like drawing a lot of metal. Yeah. And also a lot of that paramilitary shit. All those guys grew up on G.I. Joe, it seemed like, or they grew up on the 80s action movies. Yeah. So they always had to have a bunch of dudes with armor and big guns. And of course, that was all over Wolverine when Sylvester was doing it, too. Although people from the Weapon X Project, Maverick and Wraith and Silver Fox, wasn't it? And all those other Silver kind of people. Fog. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right. Yeah, yeah. The, the X Weapon X squad yeah. or whatever. Clearly, as we're going through these issues of Cyber Force, it's like, this is really an X-Men book in all but actual fact. It yeah. feels very much of a piece with all of his X-Men work. We're introduced to Cyber Data, which is in their version of an evil computer Apple organization is there, type. Is there Skynet? Yeah, what? Oh, uh, yeah, I guess. Yeah, there's Skynet. They were actually mentioned in Savage Dragon at one point. When yeah, they were kind of a big deal in there, yeah. right? Well, well, a lot I, thought, of his... I thought, well, I always felt like those organizations were a way to keep all the books linked. I really enjoyed that. I missed that about Image when they used to have that commonality. Yeah. But yeah, it wasn't like Overmaster like farmed out some of the yeah, uh, mercenary Cyber stuff. Data, Cyber, yeah, yeah. It's like, I'm never going to go with those incompetents well, no, no, again. No, no, actually, Cyberdata rebuilt Super Patriot. Yeah. They were supposed to control Super Patriot to commit these murders, but make it look like a botched rescue. But wasn't the Covenant of the Sword tied into Super Patriot as oh, well? I have no idea. Okay. Like we're getting yeah, far into the going deep cuts let's, now. Let's get back to Cyber Force. Okay. And so we're introduced to the whole Cyber Force team. Well, who uh, else in this? We didn't, we, the one we didn't talk about was Heatwave. And Heatwave is kind of the generic Cyclopsy kind of dude. He's got the, the same gear that we had with Cyclops where he's got the headpiece, the open mask so that his brown hair can come out. And he's got that Blade Runner style where he's got the big collar and everything's poofy, big shoulder pads. Very 90s dude. Are you sure we didn't record on this, man? I feel like we've recorded on this. No, I think part of it is we went off on a tangent during Wildcast recordings. Okay, because so. I'm looking at this. But I, but I don't want to discuss. I'm looking thing. at this issue and I'm like, I remember talking about this because it turns out Velocity and the chick that's chasing her down are sisters. Yeah. And I remember like thinking like, wow, like these guys really, just, just by looking at this, they relied heavily on their art style, mm. not so much on their writing. <laughs> well, it, it's definitely a quinky dink that Ballistic and Impulse are going to be sisters. They do build that up over the course of the miniseries though, where they both were like, a had abused, they were abused as children. Yeah. And so they, they have this, but, but Ballistic was like her protector. But one of the big things they, they make a point of in this book is that the people who work for Cyberdata have implants, chips implanted in their brains that make them more violent and make them more prone to following Cyberdata's directions. Yeah. And Ballistic has that chip, which is why she doesn't remember her sister and is willing to hunt her down, where Impulse does not have that chip. So she's... Impulse. No, sorry, Velocity. velocity. Sorry. Like, it's, well, like, fucking 90s, man. You know, everything's a fucking a adjective or a verb or a noun. You know, it's like they don't have... I was saying, I'm like, wait, are we talking about 
about DC Comics? Like, wait, where's he going with this? I, yeah, I, I Velocity, should've... sorry. Okay, well, no, no, no. Well, that's not even the worst part because Velocity and Ballistic are not only sisters, but the main villain, Mother, is their mother. Mother May I. Mother May I. I'm sorry, Mother yeah. May I. Who I gotta admit looks fucking, fucking cool. Fantastic. Yeah, is... I love that blue and purple and yellow. Well, she's basically Mystique, but like crossed over with Storm. She's got this very ornamental kind of style, a little bit African, a little bit Asian, but she's got that deep blue skin with the dark red hair like Mystique. You know, you're right. It, yeah, that's right. Yeah, you're right. I didn't think, yeah. I didn't think about putting She looks together. freaking boss. She's really awesome looking. Mother May I, I'm not sure is that great of a name, but I think he's maybe trying to go for like a cool Alan Mori kind of thing with it. She's the leader of Cyberdata, and her big thing is she's also a mutant, right? Yeah. And so Cyberdata, like mutants are, are, are feared and hated in the image, in this section of the image universe, just like they are at Marvel. Because again, this is an X-Men book and all, but fact. And so Mother May I, just like Mystique, is like a revolutionary who's funding terrorist organizations of mutants and cyborgs and mutant cyborgs to help to protect mutant kind from the racism great greater society. But because she's running Cyberdata secretly, she's having to funnel all these terrorist organizations through Cyberdata. So people don't know that she's actually controlling a lot of these terrorist groups that people are worried about. And I just want to throw this in there. They do introduce some other characters. They introduce a character named Killjoy, which I think looks fantastic. Yeah, she's such a great design. Describe Killjoy. Kill, okay, so Killjoy, she has a Day of the Dead type skull in gold on her face with a long black ponytail. She's all robot. Dude, she's just a fucking badass. Hey, she, what color was her costume? It's purple. Yeah, she's got like a uniform kind of red. The, he's really into these purples and yellows. I'm mm-hmm. noticing a lot of the female characters are, because Ballistic's in purple and yellow. Velocity's in purple. Killjoy's in purple. Mother May Eye's in purple and yellow. They're definitely all in that purplish color. He has and then the spectrum. villains, the men are either red and white, red and silver, red and green. Yeah, there's a lot of dudes in red. So, uh, I mean, Ripclaw is red and gray. Was Heatwave red is, or tan? What, what color was uh, Heatwave's suit? Gray and yellow. Dude, Silvestri, his character's design is on point. I'm looking at this. I mean, you got Ripclaw fighting some giant robot dude with, and again, three arms. This time, three appendages. A saw, some other kind of weird saw. He's like saw. buzz saw or buzz yeah. cut or some shit like that. It, it, after a while, it's hard to remember which ones it's were. It's probably buzz light or some shit like that. They're not very imaginative yeah, when well, it comes that, to that. Particularly with um, Sylvester stuff, I tend to think of the Marvel UK Death's Head variations, like die cut and death metal, and it all kinds of starts to run together after a while. Actually, actually, the dude with two arms, I think he has three arms on one side, dude. But, but I think that dude's yeah, buzz no, he cut. he has three arms on one side. It's the evil supervillain team that, that works with Cyberdata, yeah. but I don't remember the names right now. I just know Killjoy because I remember thinking I was Are you still in the first issue? No, I'm second issue. Already. Okay. Oh, no, just trust me. If you're going to listen to this podcast, especially this one, I would recommend picking up the books and just follow along with us. Yeah, we're, we're doing a commentary. Yeah, we're doing a commentary point. on this one because I'm saving you a lot of pain because I read these books. And Frank read these books. Frank, how did you feel when you read these books? Uh, look, here's the thing. There's another podcast I listen to called 90s Comics Retrial. And two books that Nathaniel Wayne's been particularly kind towards were Cyberforce and Pit. And I think part of that was because he thought that both those books had a sort of sense of humor about themselves and they had enough of a self-awareness tongue-in-cheek approach to the type of stories they were telling. Bullshit. And I agree. No, I agree there is an element of that but there's attempted satire and then there's actually effective, amusing or insightful satire. This is just cheeky. It's still bad. It's still very imaged, very chrome image. I think it gives you a little bit of respite from that by being cheeky but that doesn't mean the writing is actually good and there's so much awful coincidence and basically a complete absence of plot. It reminds me a lot of, of the work that Mark Sylvester was doing with Larry Hama and Wolverine where you just had these episodes that were existed solely to set up Wolverine getting into fights with people but they didn't actually have proper plots. They didn't have any proper resolutions. It's just like a fight would happen because of a variety of circumstances. The fight would continue 
continue in, uh, across a bunch of different scenarios and then the fight would resolve without anything actually having been done just fight 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 yeah. and Cyber Force is pretty much the same way but with less thought put into it than Larry Hama's Wolverine okay so I'm gonna go the opposite I'm gonna think you guys read too much into it to kind of compensate I do think that they I, gave I, it too much I, credit I don't believe there's this whole well see there's this undertone nah nah this dude was look at my art my art's gonna fucking make you jizz don't read it because it doesn't make a lot of sense like I just needed words on a page I well, just need names and I need to tell you some stuff my art will explain because the artwork if you look at it I was looking I'm not even looking at dialogue I pretty much you can tell you, the story you, he's you, a good storyteller story. it's great story artwork, it's fucking phenomenal when I read these I remember sitting there going Jesus like who wrote this? I don't like, want yeah you don't want to read did, the dialogue did very much someone like did you pay someone for this no like, can you get that, money back that was literally this? part of the problem with all the image guys is uh, he got his brother to help him write it his brother I think was doing the scripts and it's oh, like, like so what did his brother do before was he like a manager at a Denny's or some shit he's like I've heard these conversations at a table and it seemed interesting in a comic book world this dialogue I've known Frank 20 years I really believe this is where you you helped me evolve my enjoyment of this thing we do I used to be all about the art and I would only buy books for the art I would read them but I didn't care as much about reading as much as the artwork then you were like you turned me on to Peter David first because I remember I was reading all Peter and I, I just assumed well shit all comic books I mean even as a kid I remember reading Claremont I just assumed all of them were this good all books are this good and then someone would give me like these really shitty books I'm like well why isn't this as good as like the X-Men and I started well let's look at the writer who's the writer of this book and that's when I was like okay well there's certain writers that you know their style if you put them at the right character you're gonna get a really good story that part of your life is gonna be fulfilled with enjoyment of reading a great story at this time dude these are just bad dude like I, if I own these I'll give them away because I, I wouldn't want these in my collection I love the artwork but the writing is just so bad yeah the intention with Image in part was to show that you didn't need the companies and you didn't need writers and they have really, proved the, the writers thought they really wanted to prove that you didn't need writers I, I think that the, yeah they wanted to show that they were the ones who were coming because here's the problem a lot of the guys who formed Image were working on the Xbox right and one of the things that Chris Claremont one of the reasons why he survived as long as he did is because he really turned over a lot of the plotting over to the artists he let the artists kind of draw the kind of stories they wanted to draw which is why the book would change so radically from artist to artist when a new artist came on the stories that were being told with those characters changed radically because he gave the artists a lot of latitude in the plotting but then he would go in and he had this gift for it for telling the story with whatever the art was given to him he was kind of like a Stan Lee where he, the writer the, the artists were at least co-plotters if not more so it was actually one of the reasons why him and John Byrne bust up is Byrne basically decided no I wrote this book I want the credit for the writing and Claremont wouldn't allow for that he was willing to let his artists do a lot of the plotting but he ultimately still felt that he was the writer I mean he did and, the dialogue and, I'm sure yeah he did the dialogue and he guided the book and they would discuss what they were going to do but he'd let the artists do a lot of the heavy lifting on the representation of what that story would be from issue to issue and so a lot of these guys thought that they were writers because they had Chris Claremont to come in and, and kind of make it work what they were they were putting on the page and with a guy like Sylvester as you can tell he's a great visual storyteller but once you came down to doing the dialogue and, and do, figuring out who the characters were and conveying that to the audience creating a voice for they, a character yeah they, they, they were bad at it they were really really bad at yeah. it and so what Image ultimately proved was no you don't need to have a big company behind you to do well in the industry to launch characters but if you don't have writers people are going to be making fun of you 30 fucking years later yeah. you know yeah. these guys are still getting shit on for those books and I think a lot of it is just because assholes went off and read more Marvel DC books continue to support corporate comics and they don't bother to expand their horizons they haven't bothered to go and look and see what else is out there because they've got their heads so far up Marvel and DC's asses but the fact is yeah a lot of these books were pretty bad and they had an opportunity to really pull away readers permanently and because of their hubris because they didn't think that they maybe needed to get some writers into the mix I think they kind of fucked themselves over then they fucked over the industry to some degree I think that if the image books had been better they would have held on to more readers and you wouldn't have had 
the, as bad of a speculator bust, you know? I think that Marvel is the worst per, uh, about that. Marvel was the ones who did the most strip mining and put out the most junk bonds. At least the image books had some value when they came out. Some of them had a fair amount of value to them. There were tons of Marvel product that never but, well, no, but I, anything. I, no, I think people who bought image books, bought into image was like me. We wanted that number one issue. Well, no, I'm but, you, but you were also floor. excited about it. You were excited about all these new characters. You were excited about this gorgeous artwork and the coloring is so much better than it ever been. The lettering became better than it's ever did been. did you read in before you were like, oh, this writing's horrible though? Did you realize I can't continue supporting this because it's just a bad product? It, I, it was on a book by book basis and I, it was over the course of a year or so in part because the books were coming out so slowly. You know, if the books have been coming out on a monthly basis so I could have gotten a sense of them earlier on and not had months of pre-orders that were slowly coming in, I might have jumped ship faster. Mm-hmm. But because there's a book here, a book there, you know, maybe a couple or three books a month for most of the first year, then you could carry some of those books a little bit longer. But I jumped ship on some of the guys faster than other ones. By the time Cyberforce came out, I think it was something like the sixth or seventh title that Image released. And by that point, I was already pretty jaded. And so I, I bought Cyberforce number one, I think maybe two, whichever. I stopped at whatever issue had the Image Zero coupon. Mm-hmm. Like it was a number of the books. It's like, okay, I'm only going to buy it until I get my coupon so I get my Zero issue and then I'm out. And yeah, I, I definitely was out before the end of the miniseries. I definitely never bought number four. Whatever the, the issue was, the coupon was. That's where I jumped off of Cyberforce. And so to me, that's my point is people buy into DC and Marvel because they have all the cool toys and you want to see what they're doing. With well, they've got the history. They got the uh, cool toys. They, they, they've image, they've had image, the cartoons and the movies. That image, kind had, of image had photocopies of the cool toys. They had the knockoffs, but they were still cool toys, but they weren't smart enough to bring in people to give good stories. They were smart enough to make sure everything else was great. They had the best production design. They had the best paper, the best coloring, great lettering. Everything was perfect except for the fucking writing because they wanted to do their own writing and they didn't think they needed writers and they were well, wrong they and it really blew up in their fucking face and the guys who realized the mistake the earliest tended to do the best McFarlane Jim Leaf but too many of these guys kept giving work to their grade school buddies and their relatives yeah. and shit like that so how do you explain Eric Larson Eric Larson was a better writer than the rest of them he's been writing books for decades now yeah. he was writing the books even before then he's basically been writing comics his entire life he wrote all the stories that he was drawing when he was a little kid when he got into independent comics so he's much more on the Jim Valentino spectrum he wrote he drew back in the old days I think he even lettered and colored his shit you know he did everything just like Valentino so one of the best ways to learn is by doing he was doing all the work early on McFarlane didn't fucking self-publish his own books he didn't write anything before he started doing Spider-Man he might have helped with the plotting but he didn't actually write anything Jim Lee co-plotted X-Men he he didn't write the dialogue for that shit so there are a lot of these guys that had maybe done elements of writing but for much less of their careers but a guy like Larson is going to be better because he's been doing his entire life he learned how to draw from drawing comics for his entire life and he got really good at that and he was going to be better than the rest of the guys as a writer because he had grit the the best way to become good at something is just do it over and over again and you'll slowly learn over time what works and what doesn't so now issue three (laughs) part two of our tantrum so at the very end of the last one Velocity is kidnapped by a group of villains in a van oh yeah that was terrible we we, we, we know we have have to take a minute for this okay right but that makes no sense we've already set up okay hold on we need to explain this right so Cyberforce the good guys are the mutants that are collecting these loose renegade cyborg mutant hybrids that get loose from cyber data they specifically they basically exist in the shadow of cyber okay, data okay. think of them as think of them as Morpheus and they're going in there and they're releasing yeah. these cyber data characters yeah. so or that catching the ones catching, that made they're catching Neos themselves. as they're falling from the sky trying to what rehabilitate them and rehabilitate the images of the mutants and the cyborgs and also fight the evil machinations of cyber data right okay, okay. so cyber data is the terrorist organization that's also a corporation so they're 
the bad guys though. And they have their shock troops and they have their ship zombie, whatever you yeah. want to call them. But then there was another group of people. Okay. And, and Velocity gets brought in by Cyber Force to protect her against Cyber Data. So then you have this other group of people that are mercenaries that if I remember correctly were hired by Cyber Data to steal a piece of equipment or, or a piece of data from another corporation that's yeah. the rival of Cyber Data. And so they're escaping with these materials and they just happen to run into Velocity and they end up kidnapping her and Timmy specifically because their van gets wrecked their, yeah. their vehicle gets wrecked and so they're stealing her vehicle so she, it's just completely coincidence that they, she runs into this stuff but it's the kind of coincidence that is completely unbelievable there's no way that all these random things would happen all at the same time they're just going to happen to kidnap Velocity and then because Cyberdata wants the information that the mercenaries have they go after the mercenaries I guess because they don't want to pay them or something I don't remember yeah. what they deal with. and then they happen upon Velocity this person they're also tracking down it's like come on that's just way too many fucking coincidences but as an added thing the, the mercenaries there's like a by beast there's like a guy he's like two people yeah. who have like two heads yeah. who speaks in like a German accent one of them speaks in a German accent and one of them I think is like an English accent and so they're kind of have this weird banter I'm between sure his the name two is like heads. Iron Cross or some shit Hold on. And I think doesn't he have like a swastika or something too I'll check one of the things that I think Nathaniel Wayne specifically said that he liked because he thought it was humorous to have this weird goofball character in the mix very Larson-esque type character to have in the book but for me it was just kind of grating because it wasn't funny it was just sort of a forced attempted humor but it didn't cover up how stinky the plot was so, while I'm thinking about it the uh, Asian newscaster from Spawn Comics also had a cameo in the book yes very nicely done Frank all that from memory Th that was their thing where they were kind of mixing elements of their book so that you felt a connection in this whole world yeah it was a universe back then yeah uh, let's see what's his name there's a dude with six arms whatever there's the van me brother and I always like to start the day with a big bang nice work split screen <laughs> yeah I think it's split screen yeah bad pun oh. yeah one of the other characters' name is Slams. Yeah, was that the, like the big blocky thing? Yeah, just like a thing. Yeah, his yeah. name is Slams. Just a generic bruiser. Splitscreed Slams, some chick. Basically, yeah, they they kidnap Velocity and Timmy. No real purpose because of some chips, some microchips they stole. Splitscreed, actually, one of his faces does have a uh, swatska on it. It's a tattoo of swatska. Very well done, Frank. All this from memory? You know it's never going to leave your mind now, right? It's trapped there forever. And then, uh, of course, as they're, they're trying to make us their escape, they are attacked by some dude who shoots flames out of his hands and he blows up the van and then it just it stops there and it says next entering Pit in issue three we're introduced to Pit Frank would you well, like to well reintroduced because Pit's already been in the comics he's been he, out already for a while because he'd had um, well the first issue of Pit ended up coming out before the supposed preview for Pit in, oh, wait, wait, I think wait. it was Youngblood number three but Youngblood number three was so late that the four page six page backup -ish, uh, story of Pit came out like a week after Pit number one which the problem in which had repeatedly but we already knew who Pit was by the point time Cyber Force number three came out because it was also really fucking late. Between one and two, there's a four-month gap. Between two and three, there's a four-month gap. And it's only three and four that were actually a month apart. So, of course, this group decides to battle. Okay, so the initial group that's against Cyberdata sent that rogue group to steal something that then it gets attacked by Killjoy and that group. It, dude, it's so fuck-fusing. So, <laughs> Killjoy and her hit squad. It just, it, it, it pays not to think about it. It's an excuse for a bunch of people to fight. Yeah, punch, punch, fight, fight. Everyone's running around battling. I still think Killjoy looks great. 
great though. Yeah. Well, it's funny again, Silvestri didn't get what he was doing. Everybody that I've heard from who talk about Cyberforce in the modern day points to Killjoy and how cool she looks. So the characters he focused on were everybody but Killjoy. Yeah. <laughs> Literally like Ballista got her own miniseries. I think Cyblade got at least a one shot of not a miniseries. Striker got an ongoing series spinoff. But Killjoy, who was a villain, I don't know if she's ever had a book of her own. And that's the one that everybody's like, wow, she looks really cool. Who's that? But I did notice that in the most recent revamp of Cyberforce that's coming out soon. Who's writing uh, it? Huh? I don't recall. I don't, I don't think it's a known quantity who's writing it. The second issue prominently features Killjoy. So I think there's something to that. Now, does DC own Cyberforce? No. They, they just own all of Jim Lee's Just Wildstorm. Storm, right? Just Wildstorm. Okay. Sylvester got his start at Image as part of Homage Studios. His books were all coming out of that little subdivision of Image. But he very quickly spun off into his own studio, Top Cow. And he holds all the copyrights to his characters. But there are, there are some interesting bleeds here and there, though. Like, for instance, I asked Liefeld this in a tweet that he never replied to. But DC owns Hellspont. Hellspont is an alien daemonite who possessed an Aurelian, which is a alien race that Liefeld owns. It's from Youngblood Comics. So how do the rights work on that? Uh, again, you mentioned Super Patriot. You know, Larson clearly owns Super Patriot, even though he's apparently uh, derived from Cyberdad. So, uh, so Cyberdad, right? His organs are yeah. from that. So there is some weird little bleed there. But most everything that you know from Sylvester's wing of image is entirely owned by him. So does Top Cow still produce comics? Yeah. I really haven't seen anything from Top Cow. They contracted, I noticed in recent years, they, they were they were going pretty strong for a long time, but recently the like Top Cow universe has kind of fallen apart. That's uh, they, what, they, like, finally ended, yeah, they finally ended Witchblade. The darkness. They haven't done all Darkness book recently to my recollection. They're relaunching Cyberforce. But like all the Artifacts books, there's a whole line of books about the Artifacts, uh, like the Witchblade and the Darkness. Yeah. Those are all gone now. That's all been canceled. They recently relaunched Witchblade again because they briefly had a series called Switch that Stefan Sedgwick was doing where it was like a new Witchblade and a new relaunch, but they left and now they're doing an actual Witchblade book again. So it's sort of like they're kind of rebuilding Top Cow. Top Cow managed to sustain a universe for a long time, longer than most image founders, frankly. Except, but but they but uh, it recently... Larson. They, well, Larson doesn't really have a franchise anymore. He has Savage Dragon. Most, most There really isn't anything else surrounding Savage Dragon anymore. It's just the one book where Top Cow was actually a line oh, of no, books. You know, you're right. You're right. Because he, he had multiple. Because I was going to say, what about McFarlane? But no, McFarlane only has spawn. He's pretty much just spawn nowadays. Yeah. yeah. So they've, they've all contracted significantly. All the pretty ponies at Image now are the standalone projects by guys like Brian Vaughn. The actual Image founders, for the most part, have kind of been forgotten to some degree. They're kind of been pushed to the background some. Like very recently, Eric Stevenson was promoted to a partner at Image. He now co-owns Image and as well as being their publisher, in part because he's so successfully transitioned Image to becoming the Vertigo or the uh, Icon or whatever you want to call it. They're, it's the home of creator-owned books. There are a lot of publishers out there I'm worried about now because so much of what they used to do is being done by Image. They don't have anything to support them like they used to have. Dark Horse in particular I'm worried about because they don't they've have a lot. A lot of their they've IPs. lost a lot of their shit, yeah. yeah. Um, Star Wars. Yeah, exactly. Uh, all they have now is Alien, Predator, Terminator. Well, we'll, we'll talk about that in a few. Uh, Stevenson has really made Image a force in comics again, but that doesn't really impact on the Image creators in terms of their market share for their little branches and stuff. If McFarlane books are only selling 20,000 copies or less, he's not really that relevant to modern comics. Uh, Larson's books only sell so well, and obviously the Top Cow is no longer a line of books. There's like a smattering of books. They've, they've just recently launched Cyberforce again, which is like the second or third relaunch within the last decade. They just relaunched Witchblade for the second time in five years. They're, I think they're struggling now. They did sustain for a fairly long period of time, so you got to give Top Cow credit for that. Okay. They also got some writers, well, so that helps. I picked up from the library the new Warren Ellis is writing it, The Wildstorm. 
Um, is that for DC though, right? It's DC. Yeah. Oh, never mind. I thought it was Image. My bad. I would have checked it out if it was still a creator-owned company, but it's a, a more DC product. I'm not interested in supporting DC product, even though I have an affection for those characters. I'm not interested in seeing Warren Ellis do his typical cynical, bitter uh, revamps of, of characters that I had an affection for. It'd probably just piss me off anyway. So I'm sure Martian Manhunter will come out cool in this one. Okay, yeah, I, he Warren was Ellis, part of him for a while. Yeah, I guess that's uh, I liked that, but they didn't do anything with it. So Mother May I? I don't know, dude. Like where to go with this? I mean, well, I do remember that the I think it was the CIA or the FBI, some government agency went to Stryker randomly while he was. I, I love this. He was pumping iron, like lifting weights with his cybernetic arm. Yeah, which is like, why would you be building the muscles in your cybernetic arm? It's anyway. So they recruit him to infiltrate Cyberdata to get close to Mother May I to find out her plans and potentially take her out. And so he becomes a highly placed member of Cyberdata in the span of like between issues two and three. Basically, they set up a circumstance where he saves Mother May I's life. And I think he even becomes her lover, right? The Asian dude who actually runs Cyberdata, who's like the corporate chair that's in the building running the company, who's also in love with Mother May I, gets like super pissed off about that and starts to turn on Mother May I as a result of that, of her relationship with Stryker that again occurred between issues like two and three of a four issue miniseries. The one character I got to admit that looked pretty cool was the Buck and the Mother May I's group, the deer. The deer. Oh, yeah, he did look cool. He looked pretty cool. Adam Warren did a similar character for Empowered that was really badass. Adam Warren. Oh, really? So I don't know if they were related, if he happened to be looking at that image book. But yes, for some reason, cybernetic steer men are really cool looking. <laughs> but you don't see them very often. I think Chris is a bitch to draw. That group escapes from the shock troops and they get back to their base. And the female villain is telling, um, what was the name of the Slams and uh, Blitzkrieg or whatever his name is. Mercenary guys that they got an ace up their sleep. And they're like, who? And she goes, oh, this guy named Pitt who just happens to be sleeping on the couch. Yeah, they just randomly, like, he, he's hanging out at their base. They yeah. just, like, they, they like, what are they, like, squatters or some shit? I assume so, yeah. And so this Pitt just randomly starts squatting. And so they're like, oh, okay, well, we, we take advantage of this. And because so, n- no coincidence is too far fetched for a Cyberforce comic, apparently. Well, I mean, at this point, Cyberforce decides to attack the mercenaries. The Cyberdata group, Killjoy and them, kidnap Velocity and Timmy. But Cyberforce thinks that the mercenaries still have them. So they're going after them, not realizing they've been kidnapped by a, whole, a second set yeah. of kidnappers. I just had a moment of Princess's Bride. This is inconceivable. <laughs> so they attack the mercenary group, impact and all of them come rushing in. And who's there to start kicking ass? The 80s heavy metal guy, Pit. Pit just starts kicking ass, who basically is just a Hulk ripoff with a mullet and claws. And no nose. This is where the fun starts. So Pit is beating up Cyber Force. Then the shock groups with Killjoy decide they're going to attack. So then now you have three armies all battling at the same time. Impact gets his ass beat. Cyber Blade gets her ass beat pretty bad. Pit looks like he's just beating the shit out of anybody that's in front of him. Killjoy goes after Pit. She's attacking Pit, doing no damage. Then Slam walks up behind her and slaps, basically beats the shit out of her. And it's just a free-for-all. Sylvester just drawing three groups of characters beating the living shit out of each other. And we find out later that Velocity and Timmy are being held hostage by Mother May I. And they're trying to escape. It looks like Mother lets them escape because part of her deep dark plan. Cyberforce then attacks Mother May I. Striker in his four arms is actually back. So he has three Mother arms. That- well, he has three arms on one side and a fourth. He actually has one arm and three arms on the other side. Right. Oh, so he has four, four total. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Math. Yeah. Apparently Frank's <laughs> nemesis. And so they're battling a lot of... Wait, cool- does he have three arms on one side? I thought it was two arms on one side and one on the other side. Cybernetic arms. Jeez, that's really excessive. I know. Trust me, when we were talking about it in the beginning and I said three arms and then I... Re- 
re-looked. I'm like, when he's lifting the barbells, there's one side that has three barbells and one in his. Which, okay, why would you need to lift weights with a cybernetic arm? So stupid. It's not going to get bigger. It makes no sense. And, and, and before somebody on our fucking page puts on, it's for balance. Bullshit. The dude's fucking over, way overweight. He has three arms on one side. He technically should not be able to walk. He should be dragging one side of his body, if you think about it. Oh, could you imagine what they would do to his back? You know, I mean, just... I mean, he... he, Those have to be, like, super thin-ass metal. That dude is not ergonomically correct. No. Like, his cybernetic enhancements are not ergonomically... He did not... He Conscientious. He he defies physics in the most obnoxious way of, like, oh, yeah, I got three arms on one side, and they're all made out of metal, and they're all fucking super masculine, and guess what? I walk just fine. So, Mother May I... They're battling. They're still battling. They're battling some more. A little bit more battling. Their dear dude there gets his ass whipped. Yeah, this is another thing you just reminded me of something that drove me nuts about these books. For some reason, and I vaguely remember this from his work on Marvel as well, the one technical aspect that Sylvester just completely mucks up in comics, his books just stop. Mm-hmm. Like, he never builds to any kind of a big climax to where it ends, you know, in like a cliffhanger, like a big thing. It always just stops running. Well, no, no, he did. Like, because, like, he, you know, the one he had an elevator with the group all in the elevator drop, and then it goes, done to be continued. The elevator's, like, dropping, or it's just, yeah, like, decli- you know, they're in the elevator dropping. It's a weak ass ender. Didn't one of the issues end with a van blowing up or Yeah, that's the last one. That's yeah. When Velocity and them were kidnapped, yes. And he just stops. You know, it doesn't have, like, a proper ending. I think so. Like, did they even have the shock troopers at the end of issue two, or was it just an impact happened on the van and then the shock guys show up on the third one? I think the shot guys just show up. On yeah. The yeah. So it's like, that's not how you end a comic book. That's not how you stop a, a story in I'm progress. You, again, for anyone listening to this podcast, at their office desk, they should have these issues in front of them because we're skimming the art. We're not really talking about plot points. Well, we both this, read this the was story. Not, this was not a spoiler-heavy episode. If anything, we are critiquing. Well, the truth is, having read the story, I might have taken some notes the first time, but I didn't keep up with those notes. And I think I might have just plain stopped because I'm like, I just sort of gave up because there's not any kind of really detailed plotting going on here. And because in recent episodes of Spawnometer, I've just talked way too much about shit that didn't need to be talked about that degree. I think being organic is probably the better way to approach this because if we actually go at it detail by detail, we're just going to be bitching the whole time. Oh, yeah. We're just going to be shit talking at least. And no one's going to want to listen to us. Hell, I don't want to listen to us half the time. So anyway, issue four starts out with... <sighs> Here we go. Apparently there were some riots that broke out with mutants who were stealing shit. Mother May I is upset. This is actual dialogue. Come on, Striker. We've got better things to do than listen to some arrogant, self-serving son of a sewer rat talk about how deeply committed he is to protecting all this fair city from hordes of hideous mutants. Just, God, dude. I guess you could say a writer helps a character find their voice. And when you have a group of characters, each voice is distinctive enough that when you when you read it it feels like you're listening to a group not the same guy write dialogue for every character that sounds exactly the same that you could interchange any character so yeah, one element pitching. of writing that doesn't get talked about enough is the quality of delusion that comes into play because these characters live inside your brain to such a degree that they start to form their own personalities their own inclinations and so you just sort of like transcribe these scenarios that play out in your brain about what these characters would do and say and shit 
And so that makes them natural. It gives them sort of a life of their own. Obviously, they still exist inside your head. So it's kind of a little bit nuts to even allow that to happen. It's like, you're a writer. Why aren't you dictating to the characters what they're going to do? But part of what allowing those characters to form their own personalities. And of course, you're drawing from people in your life and, and things like that. So they kind of, again, they take on a life of their own. Where when you're writing a character and you're not familiar with writing, you don't understand that you have to live with those characters 24-7. Writers are constantly thinking about their characters, constantly thinking about stories, constantly playing out a variety of scenarios. Whenever you write a story, the bits and pieces you remember, it's almost like a dream where you're trying to remember the part, certain parts of the dream and that's the parts you can actually get on the paper. But you never get everything onto the page because there's just too much floating around your head. But a lot of times with amateur writers, they're still figuring out how to just take the thoughts of their brain and put them on paper at the most basic level, how to tell a story at the most basic level, not the kind of higher functioning, crazy, required to actually have characters have souls and convey that onto the page. And so that's why you end up with this terrible dialogue and these nonsensical plots because they're just stuff is happening because you've decided stuff is going to happen and it's very inorganic and you can't deal with a variety of vectors. So you create these bizarro scenarios that don't make sense or rife with coincidence because you're just trying to make something happen. You decide it needs to happen. I'm assuming Stryker at this time is still under control of their mother. May I? They're separating Timmy and Velocity. If I remember correctly, is somewhere, I think it was between issues three and four. Velocity actually escaped from Cyberdata and then like in the gutters at some point, she got recaptured and they just basically reset all that shit. Why did you bother having her escape in the first place? Yeah. It almost felt like they weren't reading their own comics from issue to issue to know what was going on. I take it there was probably not a lot of plotting. They just... Yeah, I think that they were just drawing shit sometimes, you know? And so Mother May I is hyping up all the mutants. She's making out with Stryker. They keep doing this thing where they put up dates like Wednesday, 8.31 p.m., Computer Control Center. I find that that's a tell for me. I automatically start to question whether or not I'm reading a good story when they do that shit because that's one of those things you do when you feel like you need to put something on the page. It's like, I'm going to put a date and a time and that'll set the scene. It's like, no, that doesn't set shit. You're just giving data that nobody's going to pay attention to because unless that data becomes relevant. It's just taking up space. It's just taking up space. It's like, I put something on the page. I typed a date and a time. And when you do that over and over again and it doesn't have any meaning because it's like Chekhov's gun. If you're going to go through the trouble of putting those kind of exact details onto the page, they need to be relevant. It needs to mean something. It's like, oh, that's a timestamp. I need to know that specific date and time because something else is going to happen later in the story and you don't know. You need to pull like some kind of fucking memento shit where all of a sudden all those dates and times like, oh yeah, they told us the whole time. This happened before this. So they're fucking with us, you know, like or Tarantino kind of thing where you're fucking around with the chronology and so it's important to have those kind of timestamps. But so many movies just randomly start putting timestamps because it's something to put on the screen or it's a a shortcut to tell you that you've shifted scenes. So when you do that, it lets me know that you couldn't do that in a way that was more artful. You had to just be as blatant and and obvious as possible. Okay, this is where the scene's changing now. Oh, we're we're going to a different place with different people. That's not good writing. So I automatically start going, hey, wait a second, when that happens. And I'm automatically going to become more critical when that happens because it's just such a bad cheat. Tell that you don't know what you're doing when you do that shit, especially when you do it a lot and especially when it doesn't pay off in any way. You're just wasting the audience's time because imagine if you're reading that book, like let's say you're a fan of Lost, for instance, right? And so you're sitting there and you're trying to pull these clues together and make it all work out and then in the series it turns out it's all like a fucking dream and none of that shit matters. They're in purgatory. Yeah. So you're fucking pissed because you've devoted all this time and brain space to figuring out how all these pieces fit together for the writers ultimately to go, nah, it doesn't mean anything. It was all a bunch of bullshit. You resent the shit out of that. Yeah. And when you do it one time, people are always going to remember that you fucked them and they're never going to forget and they may forgive at some point but they never forget that time you fucked them that you made them think that they needed to put the effort into something and you were just bullshitting them the whole time it pissed you off and so yeah when books do that it's like you're going through all these details so either it's meaningless and you're just wasting your time and ours by putting that shit there or you're actually fooling somebody into thinking that it is meaningful and when it turns out that it doesn't mean anything you're just going to piss them off unless you're actually doing something with it don't do that shit it's bad writing 
they do that several times here at one point wednesday 5 37 p.m cyber data technologies building medical wing center and this is killjoy you're very resilient velocity the most difficult we've ever had so this time we'll make a clean sweep start from scratch a whole new you well not really you not you at all that's actual dialogue now granted i don't give it any justice by reading it out loud but that just gives you an idea of this is what you have to read to get through the book now again artwork great he looks like he's taking some shortcuts now because there's a lot of blocks like he's not doing detailed work yeah i remember in the fourth issue that all of a sudden there's a lot there's, of silhouettes yeah and there's shit. a lot of silhouettes a lot of shadows you know, isn't most of the action at the very end of the book just a bunch of Almost, silhouettes i mean you have a whole panel of just like a hand covering a mouth mm-hmm. so it, it definitely feels like he was getting a little burnt look at it. i mean huge well, not just close-ups that, yeah the, the shit where you're taking four months in between issues and you're realizing okay i can't get away with the shit anymore so you start taking shortcuts to just push it out so shock and cyber force are battling again like they've done before and yeah you're right at the very end they have this huge battle everyone's battling kevin's there battling trying to get timmy back here comes killjoy and her crew ballistic puts a gun to velocity's head telling everybody to stop but she's gonna blow her brains out rip claws ripping the dude the big dude with three saws oh, there was off. one part too wasn't it ballistic that stabbed velocity in the leg and that's how they made well, she threw a blade yeah point. to stop her from running yeah because this, again, was, this was issues ago but yeah I just but velocity's thing is just run they go jla well, version of flash where she's kind of like i don't know how to do i just know how to run because she really hasn't well not that the you mean like the cart the the, the movie the, yeah, the, the movie yes, the yeah, the movie. yeah, movie, yeah. yeah that because she doesn't run. really fight all she does is run well again that's one of the problems with the book is her entire personality is she runs away from stuff and she hangs out with timmy and kind of is like a big sister to timmy that's the, her entire characterization in the four issues and she's pretty much the lead character in the story well yeah well she's the one that brings all the groups together because her sister's in one group cyber force is trying to help her she's mother may i's daughter she's kidnapped by the mercenaries yeah yeah, it's, yeah she's the focal point of this books and you know they're battling and then i think ballistic has a last minute she starts kind of like oh this is my sister and you have the guy that runs cyber data decide that he's going to betray mother may i he shoots her turns out that she has a psychic power that she can control you she controls the dude makes him put the gun to his head blows his own brains out oh no pulls the trigger but there's no bullets my bad um Dude, it's been a while since I read this. Um, well, we're kind of just barreling through the conclusion. You can just kind well, of the good skip, thing somebody, is, skip some of the finer details and just get to the finale. Okay, so at the very end, of course, this bomb goes off. It blows up next to Ballistic, which kind of knocks her senses loose. And she starts to remember that her and Velocity are sisters. Of course, we gave it away too soon, but that's the big reveal that Mother May I was their mom the whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, when she starts remembering that. And so she's like, wait. Kind of like how Mystique was Rogue's mom and later yeah. Nightcrawler's mom as well. Was she Was she Mystique's mom? I mean, well, uh, she, was, she was definitely Rogue adoptive mom okay adoptive mom but she wasn't her but then it mom. turned out she was like nightcrawler's mom and she yeah. also was like the didn't like her and zebra have a kid together as well, well it was like an evil senator or some shit i don't know i didn't stick with the x-men that long velocity saves ballistic she catches her and she's like just let me go no you're my sister and she's gonna hold on to her but then velocity as well is falling off and then striker pops up and he grabs both of them rescues them they walk in they find mother may i she basically says you know i guess you're my daughters or some bullshit like that take care of my girls they end and we are then introduced wait is this a new group the very end i don't remember this page for some reason we're introduced to blood bow there's a character's name blood bow blood bow got more guts than common sense got to be the first of everything then we have tempest okay oh yeah don't get to that that's that's the the codename strike force preview we, we, let's, we're not gonna oh, get okay that. my bad what's well, yeah. at the we'll, very we'll end we'll do yeah we'll do that oh, okay we well, they don't force. they really don't okay see the way they do it is they do it back to back yeah it just so i just 
stopped. Just it was fun. Well, once again, we we discussed Mark Silvestri doesn't know how to end a book. True. So it just oh yeah. Then, so that's, yes, that, that, so that, you, no, no, that's so that's so uh, an example of what you yeah. just said. Yeah. So having read Ten Men of War, like, did you carry on with Cyber Force after that point, or did you drop it no, after I the first miniseries? Yeah. So we both I, dropped. it. I never read the ongoing series, so I couldn't tell you what happened. Yeah, and uh, I just wasn't as committed to Cyber Force going into the image books. Like the, some of the books I gave a little bit more of a link to, stuck with for a while. Some of them I've revisited more. Cyber Force is one of those ones I'm not really looking forward to reading. I'm going to read them as part of Bonometer, but we're not going to do as deep a dive into Cyber Force as we will some of the other titles. I mean, unless it turns out to be awesome. Maybe it becomes awesome when the ongoing series comes. I, I, honestly, at this point, I think I was kind of turned off by Image, and I was really interested in, I believe at the time, Valiant was getting big, wasn't it, at the time? Yeah. They kind of, like, they were, they, I mean, Valiant was around before Image. They were kind of growing parallel to one another. Yeah, and I remember getting really into Solar and Exo Man of War. Yeah. Big time. That was a majority of my money was going toward that and, you know, my usual Marvel titles and a couple of DC titles. But I backed off of Image at that point because, I mean, I was still reading Spawn, Savage Dragon, and little odds and ends. But I wasn't, like, I remember Cyber Force, I wasn't really caught. Uh, Wildcats, I got kind of burnt out on. I, I just didn't see anything going with it. Shit, they had so many troll. I mean, they had just, I just remember Image was always taking up that table of yours. Like, there was so much Image on there and I just didn't know what to pick up. Yeah. Plus, I had $1.95, man. It wasn't cheap. <laughs> Which is half the price they are now. No, I know. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, just to bitch about a dollar ninety five today's laughable, but back then, I mean, two dollars a book, and I was already... well. A lot of these books jumped up to two fifty pretty quickly too. Yeah, and I was picking up a lot of books. I remember I was like. There was times I was like, fuck, this is way too much. I'm spending way too much money on this shit. We've got at least one more deeper dive episode of Cyberforce, and we'll kind of see where it goes from there. We got some spawn action, I guess we could call it, from 108 Sage, All the Pouches and Image Comics Podcast, Backseat Directors, The Bat Boy, Pico Django, Carlos Digital, Charlton Hero, Chris at Bad Books for Beginners, Chris W. Brandon, Coffee and Comics, Derek William Crabb, Dr. Gene Nerdologist, Dorkness Delight, Ed Moore Jr. at Miskatonic and Teal Productions, Fanholes Podcast, Geekery with Dante D, The Hammer Strikes, Random Geeky Stuff, History of Comics on Film, The Hoopers, Into the Weird, Jared Albrecht, The Yard Sale Artist, Jeffrey Brown, Jennifer DeRoy, Ross, Joe Crawford, John M. Wilson is podcasting again, Justin's First Dawn, Kaiser Leo, Kella Chuckawoo, KCW, Cristados, Longbox Crusade, Lost in Time, Max Romero, Michelle Fife, Nethead, Odell Abner Dracula, Paul D. Nolan, Podcast Partners, Quentin Beck, Rad Adventures Podcasting Network, Represent Heads, Resurrections and Adam Warlock and Thanos Podcast, Richard Field, Secret Wars and Beyond Podcast, Sean Michael Ortega, Sean Phillips, Siskoid, Steve Sellers, Tim Price, and Varangian Vigil. Kaiser Leo wrote, That issue, referring to Spawn number 11, really lost me. It was a story that could have worked on another comic, but not in Spawn. Justice First Dawn wrote, I'm dying to hear your take on early Superman with a Tude Supreme. While the more run is lauded, the first series did eventually find its footing. When Wetworks was finally released, I think I only read the first issue and dropped it. They did make four awesome action figures, though. Jeffrey Brown wrote, I like Wetworks, I think mostly because of Wills Portacio's artwork. I still like his work. It reminds me of the movie Predator with how the central team of Wetworks looks. That comic to me was always a curiosity. Mother One had an interesting design and Grail too. John M. Wilson wrote, All in Supreme, I remember rather liking the first issue and the promise it held. The later issues didn't quite meet that, but I'm looking forward to revisiting the series and hearing your take. Finally, Odell Abner Dracula wrote, Regarding human heads mounted as trophies, there's a memorable panel from Sin City and Dark Horse Presents featuring this concept. I think it predates the Supreme story, but I'm not 100% sure. And then later on adds, I gotta learn to listen to the whole podcast before commenting. Since you guys brought up Omaha and 
Birdland, part of my Omaha The Cat Dancer art by Reed Waller. The rest is pretty detailed. It, there's a picture of Omaha and another ostrich lady. Mm-hmm. He didn't show everything because, as he points out, when he got a, a Fritz drawing by Gilbert Hernandez, he specifically asked for all her clothes to be on after the Omaha deal because he got a more erotic picture than he intended to oh, get. Oh, wow. So a little too explicit to, to show off. We'll put up what he gave us on the blog if you want to check cool. that out. I know you're a Hernandez Brothers yes. fan, too, so you'll probably want to check that out, too. Rockets. Image Comics, formed in 1992 by several creators unhappy with their current place in the industry. So they band together to make a new comics company for a new generation of readers. Creator-owned, mutants, cops, black ops government agents, demon-possessed, and they are going to be the greatest comics ever. April of 1992, the first issues hit the stands, and fandom resounded with cries of... Pouches? Why are there so many pouches? pouches? What? You don't like pouches? All the Pouches, an Image Comics podcast, is one fan's exploration of those early years of Image Comics. Youngblood, The Savage Dragon, Spawn, and more, with maybe even a few pouches along the way. So come give a listen at johnreadscomics.com. That's John with no H. Just you can spell it right. You're listening to Donuts and Top Cow. Two great tastes that taste better together. My name is John Griggis. Mine is Josh Crawley. We're back here sitting on the comic book noise family feed and happy to be hanging out with you. Yes, we do have donuts. But we also have adult libations to go along with it. Good journey. Who likes comic books? Who likes superheroes? Who likes superhero comic books? From the 90s? That's, um, yeah. That's about what I expected. Hey there. I'm Nathaniel Wayne from the Council of Geeks, and while I have always loved superheroes, the only period in which I was actually buying superhero comic books was during the much maligned 1990s. Now, those comic books were sitting in my mother's attic for about 15 years, appreciating in value not even a little bit. I've now recovered them, and I'm going to be going through these things issue by issue, story by story, and try and answer, in my own little way, the big question of, Were 90s comics really that bad? Chances are that the answer is going to be yes, but I think that these comics deserve another shot, and they're going to get it on my new podcast, 90s Comics Retrial, part of the Council of Geeks podcast. You'll find it on iTunes under Council of Geeks, and you can also go to 90scomicsretrial.wordpress.com. So check it out and take this little trip down memory lane with me. A memory lane paved with what may be some of the worst comic books ever written. We'll find out. This is a fan-produced, not-for-profit podcast. No copyright infringement is intended, and any use of copyrighted materials believed to be covered under fair use. If you don't agree, you can go straight to hell!